I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And have you ever wondered why the decisions you make keep leaving you unfulfilled? You'll doggedly pursue something, a career, a relationship, some big life goal. And once you finally got it, you find yourself underwhelmed, unhappy, like you keep aiming your bow at a target, but even when you hit dead center, it still feels like you missed. You're not alone. But what if we had a way to make choices that left us deeply satisfied? What if when our arrow hit that bullseye, we really felt it? Our guest this week, after years of study and introspection, provides insight into why our wants so often lead us astray and how we may harness that knowledge to desire differently. Luke Burgess is the author of the best-selling book, Wanting, The Power of Mimetic Desire in Everyday Life. He has founded four companies and is currently the entrepreneur-in-residence at the Sioka Center for Principled Entrepreneurship in Washington, D.C. In the middle of his entrepreneurial journey, he stepped away completely for five years to discern a vocation to the Catholic priesthood, where he studied philosophy and theology and lived in Rome for the majority of that time. Luke, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Michael. It's good to be with you. Well, what a coincidence. It's good to have you. So I'd like to start with a quote from an interview you gave to Gary Tan. You said, although you were working 90-hour weeks as an investment banker in your 20s, quote, I wasn't building wealth, even though I was making a lot of money. I was paying a massive misery tax, meaning I was buying a bunch of things that I didn't need to make myself feel better at the end of every day, end quote. So you moved from Hong Kong to Hollywood to pursue tech entrepreneurship, founded seven LLCs during that time. But what you say next is something I deeply relate to, and I imagine many listening do as well. You had lost an ability to feel enduring enthusiasm and desire. Quote, I was more miserable than ever, and I didn't understand the forces that were driving me. I would be really excited about starting a company one day, and then a week later, I would start questioning it. I just got to a point in my entrepreneurial journey where I realized that there were some forces driving me that I didn't really understand, end quote. So Luke, take us through that moment where you stopped, took a breath, and realized something was very wrong. The defining moment for me came, as many important moments in life do, from something outside of ourselves that wakes us up and forces us to pay attention. And that's exactly what happened to me. I had a relationship that was sort of falling apart, a romantic relationship, and my company was struggling. And I had been in talks with Tony Shea, who's you know tragically now has passed away. And he and I became very good friends and we were in talks for Tony to buy my company. And the deal fell apart at the last minute in a very sort of traumatic way. And I noticed myself feeling relieved from that blow up. And the relief didn't quite understand it at the time, but forced me to ask myself, you know, why did I have this sort of unexpected emotion at something that should, you know, devastated me? And what I came to realize was that I'd never felt so free in my entire life than in the hours, in the days, and in the weeks after the deal had blown up. And one of the reasons that I felt free is that it seemed like I'd been given permission by somebody to step back and reevaluate my goals and why I was pursuing certain things in the first place and why they continually left me unsatisfied. There's just no worse feeling for me than 
having achieved the things that I thought I wanted to achieve and then feeling totally empty after having achieved them. So it was a real wake up call for me that I was on some cycle, some kind of hamster wheel of misery and I needed to get off of it. And that's the forces that I, I was referring to in that conversation were really the forces of my own mimetic desire, the different people in my life that were pulling me in a bunch of different directions because I didn't have the ability to properly sift through the forces that were leading me to chase illusory happiness and the ones that were nudging me toward a more grounded existence as an entrepreneur. And I guess it's sort of a professional hazard for any entrepreneur startup founder to be so busy and so concerned with you know keeping your head above water, getting your company profitable, managing employees that you know you often don't take time for yourself. Most entrepreneurs are, are some of the least vulnerable people I know, and that was certainly me in my early and mid twenties. And I really had to go through a real difficult period, really, of coming to grips with the idea that I might not know myself as well as I thought I did. And I had to go back to the drawing board and think about some fundamental questions and first principles in my life. I want to stay here for a moment with the Luke Burgess of the 2000s, right? Before you had internalized Rene Girard's theory of mimetic desire, which we'll get to momentarily. So you can kind of go back in time to kind of before you had really processed and internalized this theory to kind of echo what you just said, there was an interview you did with Aiden McCullen on the Innovation Show in which you said after the Zappos deal, Tony Shea fell through, quote, I felt this sense of enormous freedom and I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. It was the freedom of not having to go after and strive for these goals that I ultimately didn't even care about, end quote. And I think that's a very relatable feeling. I think that what you just said about not knowing why you were doing certain things or wanting the things that you want. I think that's something that all of us at some point in our lives can relate to. But back then, in our little time machine here for a moment, why did you believe that you cared previously? Before your philosophical realignment, what were you telling yourself that I imagine at some point in your early 20s or mid-20s that you earnestly believed? Because starting businesses are, are difficult. Doing all the work that you did, those long hours, that takes a kind of drive that has to be fostered by at least some kernel of... to. Uh, <laughs> put a bit of a lampshade on it, desire that works as the engine of getting a company started. So what stories were you telling yourself at that time that you believed? One of the stories was a common one. And that was, I have to make a lot of money as quickly as possible. And I have to be willing to sacrifice absolutely everything in order to do that, even if it means not investing in friendships or relationships. Because if I can just make enough money to be set for life by the time I'm 26, 27, 28, whatever it is. I'll have the freedom to be able to do whatever I want to do. I'll be this great philanthropist. I'll solve all of the problems in the world because you know I alone have, have the ideas that will be able to do that. You know, just sort of like illusions of this sort of grandeur and thinking that my freedom was not going to come until I had financial freedom. And of course, I mean, that's not true because there are many different layers of freedom. I certainly didn't have psychological freedom. I didn't have, you know, spiritual freedom. I didn't have the freedom to not be just reacting to the expectations of everybody around me. And the expectations around me were enormous. I think one of the other things I was telling myself at that point 
was that I was doing something in the beginning that was really important and was a great sort of service, you know, to to other people. And that was, you know, the particular company that I had started at that point was a wellness company. We did health foods and fitness products, vitamins, minerals, things like that. We provided better access to them in places where they're typically hard to find through vending machines. And in the beginning, I thought that this was a really important mission that could change the world. I sort of got to a point in the company's development where I realized that I didn't necessarily even enjoy a lot of the products that you know I sold. It was sort of a, a lifestyle that I didn't want to you know, sort of be promulgating. I started to sort of appreciate things like sitting down for nice meals and not necessarily getting all of my food on the go. So even sort of the the story that I told myself about, you know, why this was, you know, such an important sort of noble cause, I stopped believing in that myth as well. And that sort of left me that sort of totally pulled the rug out from under my ambition or my desire to continue building it when I didn't really even believe in the in the company itself. So there's the company itself aspect of it is one thing. And then there's this other part of it that didn't really rely on the company at all and was more of this sort of existential crisis where I was sort of looking for some kind of, I mean, not only financial freedom, but also I think recognition, affirmation, status, respect, you know, doing it through starting companies. And I've started to realize lately that, you know, oftentimes we say that we start companies or take on projects in order to solve some problem in the world when what we're really trying to do is solve some problem inside of ourselves. And that's what I was doing through my never satisfied striving in my 90 and 100 hour weeks. I'm still a very ambitious person. I still work very hard, but I don't do it for the same reasons. So sort of looking for people to give me something which they could never give me, which is sort of maybe a sense of, of self-worth, dignity, peace, all of those things that I was looking for in all the wrong places. You open wanting with the <laughs> kind of a banger of a line really gets things going. You write, quote, when people tell you what they want, they tell a version of the romantic lie. Then you go on to say, quote, the romantic lie is self-delusion, the story people tell about why they make certain choices because it fits their personal preferences or because they see its objective qualities or because they simply saw it and therefore wanted it, end quote. I'd love to just learn a little more about what the romantic lie is, why it is perhaps a romantic one. And why it's something that is universal, why it's something that we all tell ourselves without even knowing it. How are we lying to ourselves every day without understanding that it is, in fact, a lie? Well, the term romantic lie does come from Rene Girard, and he used it to describe a certain way that we think of why people want the things that they want. And he discovered the romantic lie in great literature. And he contrasted the romantic lie to what he calls novelistic truth. An example of the romantic lie would be a character in a work of fiction who just starts to desire something totally spontaneously, out of the blue, out of nowhere. And that's this sort of love at first sight. I laid eyes on something or someone, and that was all that it took to make me confident in my own desire. You know, I know what I want. Julius Caesar's famous line, I came, I saw, I conquered. Julius Caesar only needs to lay eyes on something to know its value and to want it and to desire it. And that's a very romantic notion of love. It's a romantic notion of desire. It's the idea that, you know, there is a straight line between us and the things that we want. 
And I think this is you know, probably just a, a product of partly the enlightenment, sort of romantic ideals. We're not reliant on anybody else. And we go through life as these sort of independent individuals that, that don't need any help understanding what to want. And Girard said, that's, you know, we're social creatures and that's not the way that desire really works. And in the great novels, the characters always have a, some model or mediator of desire, somebody else that's in the story who is helping affect what it is that they want. And he said, authors can't write really authentic characters that desire like that, which is more true to how human beings actually desire, unless they've underwent what he calls a novelistic conversion. And, you know, great authors, Shakespeare, Dostoevsky, people like this, he said, have underwent that novelistic conversion. At some point as authors, they've read their drafts, they've read their books and saw the shallowness and emptiness of them. And it's their own shallowness and emptiness that's reflected in the things that they write. And they undergo some process of deeper authenticity of call it a conversion, not necessarily in a religious sense where their pride and ambition is just laid out before their eyes. They see that they're not as autonomous and independent as they thought, that they care about what other people think, they have rivals, they have goals as authors, and they go back and at some point in their career or maybe in the second draft of even a single book, they're able to write in a real way. And that manifests itself in the way that their characters desire things. And that took me a long time to wrap my head around. So, he, he basically said that that process that great authors undergo is the same kind of process that every person needs to undergo in their life where they kind of have all of the illusions and lies that they told themselves stripped away. And they're able to really come to grips with maybe their vanity, whatever it is, right? Whatever that thing is that's causing them to communicate inauthentically and, and to live that way. And I found it fascinating that, you know, he discovered, you know, what we'll talk about soon, mimetic desire and this romantic lie in literature, because what is literature? It's just a mirror to, to human nature because literature is written by people like you and I. And fiction contains great truths of human nature. And that happens to be where Girard spotted this difference in how characters desire things. And then from there, that was a starting point for him. Literature was not his areas of expertise. He's actually a historian. So he went and explored the nature of human desire in different domains, how it plays out in history and sociology and anthropology, and began to see that the romantic lie is everywhere, but that the real structure of human desire is a social one, that desire is shaped through social forces, and that human beings rely on other people, models of desire, to help them know what it is to want. Yes, a bit more about Gerard. You mentioned that literature wasn't really his initial field of study. Before he passed away in November of 2015 at 91, he was named by the French Academy as the new Darwin of the social sciences. Born in France, he was a polymath, a historian, as you mentioned, and a philosophical anthropologist. But as you said, the root of his revolutionary theory, mimetic theory, was almost an accident, right? It was born out of his time teaching literature courses, I think, in Indiana, even though that was not his primary field of interest or study. And he was tasked with, to put it in your words, quote, covering books that he hadn't yet read, end quote. And so, because he didn't have the formal training of a literary teacher, he tried finding patterns in the texts. And it seems like what he found was almost like a hidden Rosetta Stone, that humanity wasn't even aware that it was 
kind of writing about itself that we've always subconsciously been aware of mimetic desire of that theory without actually saying it out loud. Because as you said, he was looking at all these great works of literature, whether it was Cervantes, Flaubert, Dostoevsky, Shakespeare, etc. Pretty much any great piece of literature that he read, that mimetic desire was baked into it, although no one was ever calling it out. So if it was there the whole time, it was in every text, what was it that Gerard saw that so many people hadn't seen before, even though it was there plain as day? I think it helps to approach a new discipline or field with fresh eyes. Because once we're deeply ingrained in something, we can be blinded to truths that are right in front of our face, uh, whether it's just through kind of, you know, dogmas that we've internalized, can just really close us off and cause us not to see things. So there's a real advantage, I think, to Girard not having studied literature formally. He read it. He loved classic literature. He was a polymath, but he wasn't trained to see it in a certain way. So when he approached these novels, he approached them with the intention of being able to find some pattern in them and some truth about human nature. He approached the text believing that he would learn something very important from them. And that's really the key. I mean, there's a really good analogy here to how the lost city of Troy was found. None of the archaeologists thought that it was even worth looking at Homer's texts, the Iliad and the Odyssey. They thought that that was stupid. It was crazy to think that they contained any truths about where this city might be. And, you know, in the late 19th century, Heinrich Schleiermann actually read the text. They, they were his map to finding this city because he believed they contained truths. And sure enough, he was the person that discovered Troy. His means were different. His method was, quote, wrong. And Girard approached the text sort of like Schleiermann with the idea that I can find a pattern here and that there is across the text, there is some truth about human nature sort of at a structural level. And he was determined to find it. And one of the things that Girard has done for me, in addition to helping me understand myself better, is made literature a lot more exciting to read because I've learned the lesson from him. And, you know, having now went back and reread a decent amount of the Shakespeare corpus with this sort of new lens to see some of the things that he saw, it just opens up a world of possibility and, and insights for me. And there's a really important lesson there that sometimes the most important truths come from the most unexpected places. There's this example that you use from the Bible that basically says that this theory of mimetic desire in the literature that we read goes as far back as the original story of how humans were created, per the Bible in Genesis, that Eve would not have wanted to bite from the fruit of the tree had the snake not told her that she wanted to, and then Adam would not have wanted to bite from that same fruit had Eve not told him. And I think on a surface level, people can understand that very clearly because in that example, it's overt. I'm telling you that you want something and then you want it. But a lot of mimetic desire, and I think this is where it starts to get a little trickier intellectually until you kind of really sit in this theory for a while, is happening on a subconscious level. Basically, the idea is, and I'll throw it back to you in a second so you can tell me whether I've interpreted it correctly or incorrectly, is mimetic desire is basically saying, I see you enjoying a sandwich. And so now I desire a sandwich. 
And it's not so much that I want a sandwich, but I want the enjoyment of the sandwich that I see you getting. So then I triangulate the enjoyment I see you getting onto the object you're eating. And so then I tell myself I want a sandwich, but in fact, I'm just seeing you enjoy it. Is that sort of in the right ballpark? Or I'd love to just kind of pull apart the kind of subconscious level of mimetic desires that are happening. Because I think when someone tells you about something and then you want it because they told you, that clicks pretty quickly. But I want to kind of explore the subconscious mimetic desires that happen and how we internalize them as our own. Let's come back to the example of the sandwich in, in a minute. That's an easy one. And I think, you know, that's right. We see the contentment of somebody else who desires a sandwich, even if we didn't. And we're paying more attention to what we see in that person, whether it's their level of happiness or contentment or strength of their desire, more than we are the thing itself. Like the cues that we take from the model of desire, meaning the person who ordered the sandwich, those things really matter. We can get to why some models of desire matter more to us than others. But the point I want to make here, and going back to the example from Genesis in the Bible with Adam and Eve, one way to think of mimetic desire is suggested desire. Things are suggested to us that we ought to want. You know, the serpent sort of suggests to Eve, don't you want to eat this apple? You know, like it's being withheld from you for unjust reasons, and suggest that she would be happier if she ate it. And there's a whole other discussion here that we tend to, to want things that we can't have. And in fact, the harder they are to get, the more that we seem to want them. It's the forbidden fruit. Don't push the button. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, just the mere fact that it was forbidden inflames us with desire. But this plays out in a far more subtle level. Like It's one thing for me to explicitly suggest to you that you should want something. Michael, you should want to interview this guest in your podcast or something. It's another thing to have desires suggested without any words being spoken at all. And I think this happens all the time. And this is why this is so important. For instance, hey, Luke, shouldn't you be more upset with what that politician is doing? Shouldn't you be more upset with the Democrats or the Republicans? That's a suggested desire to me. What's being suggested to me is that I should be more concerned than I am with something. That's a desire, right? It's not just an emotion. There's a desire being suggested to me. And I think that people do this all the time. This is where it's really important to understand that 99% of mimetic desire or suggested desires are completely unspoken. We are just intuiting what other people around us want. And then those desires become contagious. Because Gerard said, and I think this is true, that man is the creature that doesn't know what to want. So he looks to other people to help him choose what to want. And of course, when we're talking about this, we're not talking about our basic biological needs. We're talking about more abstract things. And it's funny how it works, right? Like if we move towards something, if we desire something, it could be a spouse, somebody that we're dating, it could be some new toy or car that we buy, whatever. If nobody else seems to want it either, we start to second guess ourselves and wonder if we made the right choice. It's almost like we need validation. We need somebody to want what we want or else we don't value it. We can go through life like that. I mean, that was my fundamental problem as a young entrepreneur. I needed validation for my own desires, whether they came from investors or other entrepreneurs, whatever. 
And this idea of suggested desire is being very subtle, usually being unspoken. We have to understand when that suggested desire is affecting us at some level and when we're adopting things because they've been suggested to us by people that may not even have our best interests and well-being at heart. You see this in the media. They literally benefit from us wanting certain things. And the suggestions, I, I think it can be highly manipulative. And I think being aware that this happens is really important. Yes. I have a couple follow-up questions to what you just said. I, I think there's a lot to dig into there. But is there an example, one you could make up, about mimetic desire that really strips it away? If we could just focus on one, let's say one hypothetical person. That could be you. That could be someone you've made up, a friend, an imaginary person. And just explain really quickly, or however long you need, <laughs> how mimetic desire would operate in their one life, right? Because mimetic desire is something that affects all of us. It's something that affects societies, right? But I think to make sure that we have a really firm grasp as listeners who are perhaps new to this idea, can we take it down to like a solitary individual, let's say, starting his or her day? How would mimetic desire influence their actions, perhaps unknowingly to them? Sure. I will use the character that I invented in the book. So this is a hypothetical character. It was difficult to write this book because talking about mimetic desire, I was, I was careful not to try to use too many real people because <laughs> it can be embarrassing. But I think this is an example that people might be able to relate to. Somebody at the end of a, a long work day, you're frustrated with your job. This person goes, meets a friend at a bar and you know walks into the bar wanting a, a cold beer and just to catch up on work and life. And they get to the bar and meet their friend and their friend decides that they want to order a nice cold gin martini. So all of a sudden the friend orders a gin martini. Oh, that sounds like a good idea. The desire was been suggested, right? So orders a martini instead of a beer. Now that's mimetic desire at the most superficial level possible. It's just giving us ideas for things. Oh, I didn't know that I wanted that. You know, we say that all the time, at least I do, right? When it comes to eating out or, or something that I want to drink. Luke, just to jump in real quick to make sure that I'm I'm following along, correct me if I'm wrong here, for mimetic desire to take hold, there has to be a subconscious want that the mimetic desire can potentially fulfill. There's something you said earlier about when you were a young entrepreneur and you thought you wanted A, but what you really wanted was B. Like you thought you wanted to start these companies for XYZ reason, but perhaps what you really wanted was respect, accolades, recognition, whatever it might be, right? And you you saw the A, the companies, as the way to get to the other thing, B, right? So for mimetic desire to take hold and for you to believe that you want a beer, you need to subconsciously want something that you think the beer will get you to, right? Like there's a long day at work, you're exhausted, you want to relax and unwind. And then you see the beer and you think, ah, that will help me relax and unwind. Am I, am I on the right path here that for mimetic desire to latch, you need to be thinking that it's going to fulfill a need that is internalized? Yes, that's absolutely right. There's always something deeper going on than the thing itself, 100%. You know, not to use too philosophical of a term here, but Girard says that all desire is fundamentally metaphysical desire, meaning it's not for any physical thing. It's always for some quality of being that we're looking for. The metaphysical part of it, I think, grows stronger and stronger as we move out of the realm of physical things and we start talking about things like status or respect or identity. So sure, maybe I switched my mind and wanted to drink a martini, maybe just because 
you know, a beer stops sounding good and I realize that I haven't had gin in a long time, but it could also more likely be, well, maybe deep down somewhere, I'd rather be the kind of person that drinks martinis than beer. It's sort of a completely different thing, right? And you think, you know, James Bond and you think of the kind of people that drink martinis. <laughs> So right. maybe there's some of that going on, right? And I don't want my if my friends drinking martinis and I'm drinking a beer. Does that signify something? I don't know. But then we're standing there with our martinis now. And my friend really excitedly tells me that he just got a $10,000 raise at work. You know, we went to the same school. We work in the same industry, maybe competitive companies. And, you know, maybe I feel like I work at least as hard as he does, or maybe even harder and now I make $10,000 a year less. And now all of a sudden, this person who's my friend, you know, I, I smile and I pretend that I'm happy, but deep down I'm, I'm affected by this, right? Because now it's, he's not just sort of modeling the desire for a martini to me, but modeling the desire to make an extra $10,000 a year, frankly, and describes a career path. And this is going to allow them to take the vacation that they've always dreamed about, you know, $10,000 is going to go to going to Tahiti, which he's always wanted to do. And now I'm thinking, well, shit, I haven't had a nice vacation in years, you know, like screw this guy. Like what has he done that I haven't do? And now I, he's modeling the desire to take a vacation. And this could just be a friend, right? I go home that night and I'm just sort of obsessively thinking about how I can ask for a raise at my job. I'm thinking about how I can take my girlfriend on a better vacation or something like that. And it, it all comes back to mimetic desire. I woke up that very morning, not having any desire to take a vacation. I was content with how much money I'm making, right? I and mean, don't they say like, once you're making over eighty, ninety thousand $90,000 a year, like incremental increases don't lead to that much happiness. The number's probably a little higher now with inflation, but isn't that crazy how that works though? So, I mean, in the course of a single day, my desires have went all over the place. And they've been affected by models. And maybe, I don't know, I got a text from another friend who's modeling a desire for something else. And it's like, if I don't have a good sense of who I am and what I care about, every time this happens, I'm going to get thrown off. And this explains a lot. Understanding mimetic desire all of a sudden makes a bunch of things make sense, right? One, it helps one understand why social media is so metaphorically cancerous, right? Because the Example you're using of waking up one morning, being content, and then 10 hours later running into a friend and then he telling you about a raise and then you wanting that raise. That's in some ways a, a pre Facebook, pre social media example because you could get yo yoed all over the place about what you think you want, what you truly believe that you want, just scrolling for 30 seconds on a Facebook feed because you're seeing one friend on vacation. Why haven't I gone on a vacation? And you were previously just content for not having gone on a vacation. And all these other things that make us feel miserable, that make us desire things that we otherwise wouldn't have desired. And also, not to get too political, but I do think it is very related. There's been a lot of talk about things like systems, structures, etc. One, I think th those terms can be overused, but I also think that people are too dismissive of them. And understanding how mimetic desire operates can help you understand systems that can exist independent of any one person operating them. For instance, beauty standards, right? Like mimetic desire is a perfect engine for understanding how beauty standards can propagate and solidify, right? No one knows in anyone's given society why they might prioritize a certain facial structure or a certain skin tone 
over someone else's, right? And they might think, well, that's just how naturally I'm wired. I like how this person looks because that person is simply, quote unquote, attractive. But it, it can be mimetic desire that makes us think that we are attracted to those things, think we want those things, think that XYZ is the paragon of beauty or leadership or masculinity or whatever. But in fact, it's a mimetic cycle that is feeding into itself long after the people who maybe started it were dead, right? So it's just interesting to think how once you kind of unlock almost a chaotic way, to be honest, Luke, I mean, I'd I'd actually love to hear about how you kind of stabilized yourself once you learned about this theory, because in some ways, learning about it can be a kind of destabilizing event in a life. That's true. And I would say this, that the problem is when we think in terms of systems and structures, we have to be very careful with thinking that the systems and structures and processes that we put in place can somehow solve this problem of mimetic desire, which is something that exists in the space between people in human relationships and inside of us. You know, it's something internal. So in a way, we can never sort of impose a system that will somehow make this better. I do think there are certain decisions that we can make and policies and things like that that can either exacerbate or mitigate some runaway mimetic desire, but not solve it completely. You know, and I think that we have a sort of a society that's fueled by envy in many ways. And I think it's wrong to think that if we just had this perfectly egalitarian society, that that would no longer be a problem. Because in fact, Gerard says exactly the opposite. We actually tend to pay closer attention to the people that we have more in common with than with those that we don't. You know, for instance, if you ask most people who they're more jealous of, the person that makes an extra $10,000 a year, who they know and work with every day, or like a billionaire like Jeff Bezos, most people are going to say the person that they know. They're a better comp, right? Comparable. So it tends to exacerbate things, right? It's like the narcissism of small differences. I'll give you an example of how that worked. So one of the ways that I grounded myself and sort of worked some of this out in my own life was stepping away. And I did seriously discern sort of a radical way of life for a while. I, I, I was discerning becoming a priest and lived in a seminary in Rome with 250 other guys, right? All sort of striving for virtue and these high ideals. And we're all kind of the same in there in, in the sense that, you know, we live together, we share our meals together. We're all kind of subject to the same schedules and and rules and norms. And in that environment, it's like the mimesis was on overdrive because we're all hyper aware of minor differences in people, right? Whether it's like political positions or how much pasta some guy put on his plate, every meal is communal, right? So you're always paying attention to little things like that. And it was kind of crazy, like how much rivalry, you know, rivalry is something very much connected to mimetic desire that was probably apparent in the example that we used with the friend, you know, at the bar, because mimetic desire by its very nature is tethering ourselves to what other people are desiring, which sort of de facto makes us the rivals in a sense, even if we don't necessarily know it. And I don't know if I've ever seen worse rivalry than in that particular environment, which is funny to think about. It often manifests itself in sort of closed environments. I think it can be worse. But I think that, you know, for me, the most important thing to do was to totally extract myself from all of the things that were exacerbating it in my life, social media being one of them. I mean, I only got back on social media shortly before my book came out, and I don't know how long I'm going to stay on it. For years, I wasn't. And that was an important part of my process of like grounding myself and spending the time that I needed to spend to understand myself better 
there's a lot of things. This was a decade long journey for me, but you know, that was certainly one of the most important things that I did. Yes, it definitely sounds like it was. The idea of mimetic desire being strongest when you are in close proximity to a person, you want what your neighbor has, you desire what your coworker has achieved, etc. In some ways, it seems like that really directly explains why violence is low in countries that have a lot of poverty but not a lot of wealth, but higher in societies that have a lot of wealth inequality, especially when people who are poor are living in very close proximity to people who are wealthy, that the proximity of people of different social strata and economic strata leads to the kind of conflict at a very high level that is present in day-to-day activities at a much lower level of desire and competition that can happen when you're comparing yourself to a peer. Yeah. Well, that's very much in line with what Gerard found. If you look at a lot of the horrific violence in history, most of it is between people that have been in close proximity, whether geographically, socially, you know, there have been more internal genocides, more intra-family violence than the kind of highly mythologized, quote, random act of violence, right? Like you hear about that and you sort of get the impression that there's a lot of violence that happens. I could be walking down the street and at any moment, somebody could kill me. That's not really how most violence happens. Most violence is, you could call it mimetic violence, right? Between people that are already in some kind of mimetic, rivalrous, envious relationship with one another. That's a real wake-up call. I think it's really important to understand that. Now, what that says about how to run a country or city planning, I, I don't know. But it is very consistent with what Gerard found in the way that mimetic desire works. What are the implications of mimetic desire on something like, say, free will? Because the theory forces a person to confront that they are not necessarily in control of their own life, at least not in the way that they thought that they were. So if desire is not an autonomous process, but a collective one, right, that is spurred through cyclical society-wide imitation, are all of us simply reacting? Are any of us ever truly acting? Where does the cycle begin? Are any of us individual actors? Do we have free will under this theory? I believe we have free will and and Gerard did as well. And free will is why anti-mimetic actions are possible. You know, actions that are surprising, actions that resisting the madness of the crowd, certain people standing up and saying or doing something when everybody else is acting medically and sort of under the sway of that very powerful mimetic force. One way to think about it would be like this. I am affected. You are affected. All of us are affected through mimetic desire all the time. But think of it as kind of a first tug or pull on the front of your shirt. At a certain point, if you realize that, if you realize like, oh, I want this thing because this desire is being modeled to me in this way, you then have a moment of of freedom, I believe. I mean, I think you lose that moment of freedom if it goes too far. I think that I had lost my freedom in those early stages of starting my company. I was so deep. But realizing that, oh, I want this thing. Well, let me step back and be an agent and either intentionally choose it or not or reject it. So we can sanction our desires in a positive sense. One example, like I have desires all the time that I don't have to pursue and I have the freedom not to pursue them. I was having a conversation with a guy who said, yeah, it's 
not that abnormal for, you know, a man to sort of be attracted to another woman who's not his wife. And at that very moment, he has to make a decision, right? I'm married and that's a desire that I choose to reject. And if I keep following it, if I even entertain it in the wrong ways, I don't know, go out and get a drink or something like that. I reach a certain point where I might lose the ability to so easily reject that desire. It's always easiest to do it right away. So as we go through life, yeah, sure, there are mimetic forces acting on us. But I certainly believe that the idea is that we do have freedom and we can put our own sort of stamp on what we choose to pursue and what we don't, even mimetic desires. So I, I can, in a sense, make a highly mimetic desire my own by owning it and in freedom, accepting it and acknowledging that, sure, somebody else may have been part of the influence for why I chose to do something, right? I think the reason I entered seminary in the first place was because I had a model of a man who was an incredibly holy priest in my life, right? And then at a certain point, though, I had to decide, what did Luke, what are you going to do? What choice are you going to make? And what are you willing to give up for it? And that was a moment of freedom that I had. In no way do I feel like I was blindly following that model. So I think that's something that we can all do. I mean, that's my position. I think you might find some other sort of Gerard scholars that have a bit more of a deterministic view of mimetic desire, but I don't. I'd love to peel this onion a little bit. For the listener, this is all talked about in great detail in the book. So I highly recommend reading Wanting. It sounds really like our free will exists under this theory as the free will to choose which model, and we can talk about models, which model we decide to mimic or which mimetic desires we choose to pursue. But if Gerard's hypothesis holds that all desires are mimetic, that we don't self-generate them, but instead acquire them from others passively or actively, how do we ever consciously differentiate between which desires we mimic and want and which desires we mimic and don't want? Because if we're always living someone else's desires because all desires are acquired from others, how do we ever know which acquired desires are actually ones that we truly want, right? Because, I mean, I know this is getting a little heady, so apologies to the listener, <laughs> but let me just use a hypothetical, right? And I'll make myself the character here, but this example is hypothetical. So let's say that I'm pursuing career A and I thought that I wanted it and then I realized that I'm unhappy. So then I take a step back, I absorb the fact that mimetic desire has gotten a hold of me. And when I feel myself wanting something else, I take a moment to think about it and reflect on it and figure out if I truly internally want what I think I want or not. And maybe I go another way or I find another desire that I think might actually be more healthy for me or more aligned with my goals. But even if I consciously believe that I am doing the real work of figuring out which mimetic desire truly speaks to me or is best for me, or I've really thought about it a lot, there's some level of subconscious stuff happening there that I don't ever really truly have control over. That ultimately, isn't it all really a story that we tell ourselves? And, and there are healthier stories and less healthy stories, but are we ever truly able to really harness our will in such a way to really know for sure that the desire we think we want is actually one we ever truly want? Or can we just kind of get better at filtering those desires, but never truly 
<laughs> it, it, discussing this stuff can, can get in the weeds pretty quickly, but I'm just trying to figure out how we can ever really truly know what we want. Is that possible? Well, I think this is a really important discussion to have. So thank you for that. First off, this is very debatable whether all desire is mimetic or not. I think there's such a thing as non-mimetic desire. I do. And this is, there's some, many people that are, know Gerard very well that would say that all desire is mimetic. So I, I, I just should say that I go further than Gerard in the book. I propose new ways of thinking about it, and this all doesn't come from him. So if there's anybody that really knows Gerard, please don't be mad at me uh, for this. I do believe that there are non-mimetic desires. And one way to think about it is that mimesis exists on a spectrum. Some people can do one thing for extremely mimetic reasons and other things for relatively non-mimetic reasons. They could have arrived at a conclusion rationally and decided, I'm going to take this medicine because the science says this is the best medicine for me to take. I don't think there's anything that mimetic about that. So I, I think we can make anti-mimetic decisions. Not that that's always a good thing. I mean, there's some areas where I want to be more mimetic, right? Where I, I see that I need to grow in some area and I adopt a wonderful model in that area to maybe it's, you know, to be a better husband or, you know, to develop some skill that I wish I had, I find a good model and I intentionally adopt that model. So I think that's absolutely a great way to think about it, that if it's true that, you know, most of our desires are mimetic, then really, it really comes down to choosing the best models, right? To be intentional about who the best models are. I find this whole discussion, I, I wasn't expecting it, but I've been speaking to younger and younger audiences lately. I have freshmen in college that I teach. I've even been speaking to high school kids. They understand this really well. You know, I was told, I was really surprised because it does seem heady. Like, you know, nobody's heard the word mimetic before. It can get really philosophical, but they totally get it. And they begin to think about friend groups. They start to think about why they choose majors in colleges. And I, I, I have seen them. I have seen very unfree young people begin to just step back and not follow the first tug of mimetic desire, but have a bit more self-possession when they go about making these decisions. And frankly, I'll give you a, a somewhat heavy example, but this is from my own life. And you know, I think sometimes reality has a way of really grounding us in what's important. And the mimesis and the mimetic desire is totally stripped away. You know, I lost my mom late last year. We were trying to schedule this podcast and we had a hard time because I was sort of in the middle of my life got totally upended. And, you know, my dad has Alzheimer's disease and I quickly became the primary caregiver for a father with relatively late stage Alzheimer's dementia. And my response to caring for him, it's hard to describe. It feels like an unmediated desire to love my father, right? There are certain things that I don't think are mimetic, right? A mother's love for her child, sort of my, in the moment being asked, right? Feeling this enormous responsibility to care for my dad, you know? And sometimes I get 20 calls from him in the course of a day. And there's like a sort of an almost, I mean, there's a moral sort of duty I feel there. And I think that when we start getting down to these really sort of incarnational examples and I don't have sort of the decadent luxury of getting lost in all the mimetic desires that I see on Twitter every day, thinking about what cryptocurrency I want to invest in or where I want to go on vacation or whatever. And I'm just confronted with the reality of another human being in front of me that I have to care for. All of that bullshit is stripped away. 
And it does seem like there's an anti-mimetic way of acting in those situations. So I would say that it is a spectrum. You can have two people do exactly the same thing with varying degrees of mimesis involved. And part of my maturation, I think, has simply been paying attention to more of the kind of immediate, concrete desires, usually in the form of relationships, things that I really want to invest in. Because it seems like the more I get untethered from sort of the immediate world around me, the more I can just become afloat in a world of sort of infinite desires, if that makes sense, where usually what I feel like I'm being asked to do in my life is a lot simpler than I make it out to be when I start overthinking it. I really appreciate you sharing that personal story. Sorry for your loss and I'm sure the difficulty that is involved with caring for an ailing parent. I want to take the example of family, but I want to, out of respect, take it from the specific to the general for this next question, right? So it's no longer about your specific relationship with your mother and father, but to talk about the idea of mimetic versus anti-mimetic desire, right? I believe that mimetic desire is closely related to how culture is formed in various societies, right? Why we act the ways that we do in different societies, why we love the things that we love, how and why we express emotions and feelings, right? I would imagine those things that we think are truly internal, that we think are natural, are actually a result of a mimetic cycle that is beyond our control. I'll use a more concrete example. A woman that I dated for many years, years ago, born in the United States, but raised in China by her parents, being very close to her and seeing her relationship with her family and how her parents expressed love was very different from how I experienced how my parents love me here in the, the West, in America. And I don't think anything I'm saying here is really revolutionary for anyone who's experienced that cultural divide, right? I think this is something that many children of Asian immigrants also experience. The conflict between how love is, let's say, expressed in, in places like America versus other countries. In America, for instance, it's much more common for parents to tell their children, I love you, you know, and vice versa, to express their love through words, oftentimes a lot of words. But what I witnessed with my now ex and her parents and how her parents express love to one another and to her and her to them was almost never through words, but rather through, I guess, what you could call acts of service. So she would very rarely ever, ever hear her parents tell her that they loved her. And living in America after that and seeing how you know her Western, for lack of a better term, friends were told by their parents pretty much every day that they love them, that creates a real divide, right? But it doesn't mean that how people express love in another part of the world or how their relationships form with their parents or why parents in one part of the world live with their children until they pass. Whereas in America, oftentimes their parents go into senior homes, et cetera, right? All this is to say, Luke, is if even the ways that we love and express love to others are ultimately, if I'm correct here, and I'd love you to jump in in a second, if those are ultimately products of culture that is formed by mimesis, can we ever truly be anti-mimetic if even the ways that we express love to one another is ultimately a product of us seeing how others in our community express love and then we simply ape how they do it? I totally agree that you know culture is very much formed through mimetic desire. 
And mimetic desire is you know, how we learn our primary language in the first place. It's a tremendously positive thing in that if we didn't have the ability to imitate so well, we wouldn't be able to form complex culture at all. You know, this is sort of one of the things that really you know, makes humans unique in the universe. And it also is what allows us to enter into relationships with, with other people. Even our ability to have conversations is really reliant on our powers of imitation. So yes, we, we learn all kinds of things from cultural taboos to, you know, we're all sort of born into a system of desire for sure. And that system of desire often is powerful. And sometimes we don't realize the system that we're in and how much it affected us until we go and maybe live in another country. And we see that their norms are very different. So I think that's absolutely true. I also think that there is sort of a universal principle of mimetic desire that simply manifests itself in different ways in different cultures. I've had many women tell me that their sort of mimetic desire is experienced differently than it is for men, where sort of like great rivalries and ambition among entrepreneurs and business people is almost like glorified and applauded where it's not in the same way with women. So, and it's different across cultures too. It works itself out in different ways, but it's still there. I still think that across cultures, though, there are examples of people that are able to step outside of the mimetic dynamics. I have a hard time explaining, like in a tyrannical place, you know, where you see somebody do some extraordinary heroic act of love. And I don't know if that heroic act of love, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, Maximilian Kolbe in, in Auschwitz, where he took the place of a large family that was going to be executed and, you know, spent days in, in a starvation bunker in place of them. I think across cultures, you see examples of people that are seem to be, have the ability to make choices to express love in ways that are sort of highly personal and are not merely a product of the circumstances or the culture that they're in. I think they can be rare. I think you're making a great point in that normally, even the way that we express love can be certainly shaped by mimetic desire. What would be the difference between a mimetic desire and a trend? Are they the same thing? Is a society-wide trend just the expression of mimetic desire and mass, or is there a differentiation there? I think that we could probably differentiate the two things. I think that some trends can be less driven by mimesis and not merely the product of mimetic desire. To elaborate a little bit, I see overlaps, some overlaps between wanting and Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, which kind of talks about how trends start and how we kind of mimic. I mean, I don't think he ever mentions Gerard once, nor does he even necessarily call people models. But he does talk about how we mimic other people, whether they're celebrities or fashionable friends. And then all of a sudden, like wildfire, everyone's wearing their jeans backwards, or they're wearing a certain kind of coat that a year before no one was interested in wearing. So I'm just curious about the intersections of those two things. Here's an example of a trend that I think might be a, a bit less mimetic. I don't know if there's ever a, a trend that's entirely not mimetic. I think mimetic desire is always involved. But I think of the trend of less and less people smoking over the last 50 years. People don't necessarily need a model to show them not to smoke. They could simply realize with everything that we now know about what smoking does that I'm going to not smoke 
for health reasons. And I don't think that, you know, one needs to, you know, we have to ascribe that this trend to mimetic desire. Maybe why people adopted smoking in the first place is probably far more mimetic. I talk about that in the book, actually. But a lot of trends, I think, especially when they hit tipping points, the best explanation of what's going on is mimetic desire. And we see like the meme stocks and with Bitcoin, there's clearly been a tipping point that's been reached where the imitation accelerates. And I think there are many people that can participate in those highly mimetic trends without having any rational basis at all. So I'd say they can, they can become hyper mimetic really quickly. And the FOMO is involved, right? The fear of missing out. And then when those things start to happen, something that may have started out less mimetic and, and had a, more of a rational basis can become almost entirely mimetic. And Gerard talks about you know seeing the volatility in the stock market very often driven by almost complete mimetic desire. I think this segs well into the concept of flywheels, which was really interesting to me. And also, ultimately, I think scapegoats. What is a flywheel specifically as it relates to mimesis, mimetic desire, social contagion? And how can cultures dedicated even to positivity, right? Like the example that you use with Tony Shays and Fred Mosler's Zappos, where they were trying to create a culture that was geared toward delivering happiness to consumers. Ultimately, they got caught in a, a negative flywheel, which can also be known as a death loop for either a company or a group or a person. So what is a flywheel and how does mimetic desire lead to it? You could think of a flywheel as either a virtuous or a vicious cycle where one step in a process builds momentum and leads to the second step. And that leads to the third step. And that leads to the fourth step. And that leads back to that original thing, whatever it was. And there could be various number of steps. So a flywheel is a self-perpetuating cycle that builds momentum and sort of naturally propels itself forward. So flywheels of desire work like this. An initial desire, my desire for something today can make it easier for me to want something tomorrow. Very simple example of this is if I desire to feel really good tomorrow morning and I have an early night, I don't go out with my friends and, and drink all night. It's going to drastically increase my desire to go to the gym tomorrow morning. And then I could walk that forward four or five steps throughout my day tomorrow and build a positive flywheel of desire that makes it far more likely that I'm going to wake up the next day and want to continue to invest in, in things that, that improve my well-being. It creates a momentum. It creates momentum. That's fundamentally what a flywheel is. And the management guru, Jim Collins, he talks about flywheels in terms of a company's operations and how they can build flywheels of profitability, right? Like self-perpetuating sort of cycles that just like Amazon has built an amazing flywheel, right? It just keeps spurring them on to greater and greater growth. But, you know, he doesn't talk really about flywheels of desire. And I think the flywheels of desire are, are the more interesting ones because they apply to our personal lives. We can all build a flywheel today. And we usually have flywheels without knowing that we have flywheels. We're usually not very intentional about mapping them out and thinking about how they work. And, you know, we have destructive flywheels all the time where, you know, it's usually just looks very much like the opposite of the positive flywheel. And when it comes to mimesis and mimetic desire, 
there's negative momentum and contagion that can develop on a personal level and on a cultural level when the flywheel of mimesis starts moving in the wrong direction. Okay. And I think this can be something that explains political polarization. There's even a momentum where there's like a self-perpetuating process that's extremely difficult to escape. And it sort of starts with mimetic desire leading to rivalries and then leading to reinforced rivalry and reinforced animosity and anger that has a flywheel moving with incredible force and speed towards something. Think about how, how does a flywheel stop? Okay. Well, a, a negative destructive flywheel is going to stop only when there's some violence has been done. That's what can be really scary. And that's why a lot of what Gerard wrote about and spoke about is conflict and violence and said that, you know, mimetic desire and mimetic rivalry is, is the real cause of conflict and violence in cultures. And throughout human history, the way that humans have stopped that, Gerard never referred to it as a flywheel, but I, I will, the way that they stopped that negative flywheel, that negative mimetic contagion is through a scapegoat, through finding a scapegoat that actually brings the people together and allows them to stop the motion and collectively unite and cast the blame on someone or some group for their collective problems. And it slows the momentum of that process until, of course, the flywheel starts moving again. And then we have to continually seek scapegoats. Speaking of scapegoats, from the fourth chapter of Wanting, entitled The Invention of Blame, you write, quote, Rene Girard saw that for thousands of years, humans have had a specific way of protecting themselves in a mimetic crisis. They converge mimetically on one person or group whom they expel or eliminate. This has the effect of uniting them while providing an outlet for their violence, end quote. You were talking about scapegoats a little earlier in our conversation, and Gerard found instances of scapegoating rituals in nearly every ancient culture. So for our audience, what are they? What are scapegoats as a human invention? And how do they, fairly or not, <laughs> act as a kind of emergency break during a mimetic crisis? Yeah. So unfortunately, we could think of a scapegoat and the scapegoating mechanism, which is the process by which a scapegoat is chosen and expelled from a society, almost like a really dark human social innovation that saved us from ourselves, that saved us from our own violence. So, a scapegoat is just a single person or maybe a small group of people, which is singled out as guilty of causing whatever problems ails the group. You know, it provides a community an outlet for its problems. And humanity has always done this, and we've been very good at it. So the Greeks actually had a word for this person, which is not scapegoat. Their word was pharmakos. That's where we get the word pharmacy in English. And the pharmakos simultaneously means the poison and the cure. In the pharmakos, they found the poison and the cure in the same person. So they singled out somebody who was thought to have caused some societal ill or brought a plague into a community. And in killing that pharmacos or expelling the pharmacos from the community, they would experience this sort of temporary feeling of salvation. You know, we've solved the problem while obviously all the systemic problems remain. And the Greeks had these elaborate rituals around the pharmacos. 
they would typically parade the pharmacos through the street, whip the pharmacos, spit on them. This process before the pharmacos was expelled is what helped lead to the the kind of social cohesion, you know, the feeling of catharsis that they had in doing this and sort of transferring all of their own tensions and problems onto the pharmacos. And then eventually in driving the pharmacos out, killing the pharmacos, there was this temporary feeling like they had gotten rid of the problem, extinguished what ailed them. And it's funny, you know, in ancient cultures, a lot of times when there was a biological plague, something would strike a community and people would get physically sick. They often had a social solution for that problem. You know, they would sort of invent this mythology that, you know, was brought on by this person that had an evil spirit and they're the one, you know, so there's something almost demonic about this idea, right? It's like a form of exorcism, form of societal exorcism. And, you know, in ancient Israel, they had a very similar ritual, and that's where we get the word scapegoat from. The high priest in Yom Kippur would symbolically transfer all of the sins of the people in the temple onto a goat, and then they would unite, and the whole community would drive that goat out into the wilderness, and with the goat went their their sins, you know, went all of their problems, and then they would do the same thing again the next year on Yom Kippur. And that's where the word in English, scapegoat, comes from, literally that ritual. So, we all know that word. I don't think a lot of people sort of know this sort of rich history behind it. But from a Girardian standpoint, or when we're talking about mimesis, there's a few things that are interesting about scapegoats and the scapegoat mechanism. So, first of all, it's not merely that, you know, we're discharging our violence on somebody that's undeserving of it. The scapegoat actually doesn't necessarily even have to be innocent, right? It can be guilty or innocent. It's just somebody who's chosen to stand in for our own guilt. This is really important to understand because we typically think of scapegoats as innocent, but they're not always innocent. They're just people that do an effective job of standing in for our own guilt. And sort of a relatively recent example of this would be the former leader of Libya, Gaddafi. I don't know if you remember these sort of horrific videos of what was essentially a, a lynching and you know he was being spit on he was being beaten everybody was standing around watching this and you know Qaddafi I don't think was a good guy I mean he certainly had a lot of guilt but what we saw there and if you if you read some of the language that was used to describe his murder one of the other uh, sort of officials in Libya said today we've expunged all of the evil from our society through that act he literally said that we've gotten rid of everything that ills us because he's gone. That's exactly how the scapegoat mechanism works. And in fact, because he was guilty, because he had committed violent acts, it's his very guilt allowed him to more effectively stand in for the guilt of everybody else. So, he was sort of used. And you know, we see this in our society all of the time. I think the scapegoat mechanism is really at the root of what we call cancel culture. We think of it in superficial terms. I think there's something much deeper going on there. There's always this process of discharging our own mimetic rivalries and tensions onto somebody that seems more worthy of blame. I like what you said earlier about it being a human innovation because it seems to have popped up pretty much in every human civilization. I have two questions here. One, do we know if there's a certain time or period in a society's life cycle when scapegoating manifests? It seems like for scapegoating to really serve a purpose, a society has to reach a certain size for 
the idea of needing a scapegoat to kind of manifest. Like in a small tribe in which there's, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 people who all are either related to each other or who have known each other their entire lives, I feel like a scapegoat either wouldn't be necessary or wouldn't quite work. But I imagine when your city or your town or your tribe gets to a large enough point, that's when you realize you need some kind of release valve. You need some kind of way to release societal pressure. Are those two things connected, like our ability to create larger societies and civilizations and the innovation or appearance of scapegoating in history? They're absolutely connected because the scapegoat mechanism is a human method of self-preservation. It's almost like we use a little bit of targeted violence to prevent more violence. That's a very self-preservational thing, which according to Girard has allowed human societies to grow and develop. And in fact, he would even say that a lot of culture and institutions are built on top of the scapegoat mechanism. In other words, if there wasn't some kind of hidden violence at the root of them, they would sort of just collapse. You know, they rely on that. And he used the striking imagery. He said that the pyramid is the best symbol for human culture. Because what is a pyramid? Well, it's a big pile of rocks, carefully constructed rocks. And it resembles a large pile of rocks that would be over a victim of stoning, which was a very common practice in ancient times and unfortunately still is in some parts of the world. And he said, the pyramid is kind of the cultural institution that humans built on top of what was this sort of spontaneous scapegoat mechanism. We actually created the institution of the pyramids. And what lies at the bottom of the pyramid or at the bottom of a pile of rocks? Well, a victim. That's literally where they buried their kings or a scapegoat. So, in other words, the scapegoat is sort of very foundational to human society, unfortunately. It's what we've always used for self-preservation in some ways. So, Yes, it gets more complex and elaborate, and it gets harder and harder to sort of know what Gerard called the founding murder, sort of the more complex a society gets. And we have to kind of go back to the beginning. And, you know, we always have, you know, sort of mythologies about any kind of founding. Isn't that interesting? Like, there's mythologies about founding companies, I promise you. I've never heard a founding company story that's actually accurate mythology, you know, sort of brushing over even, you know, the new world in America, like the violence that was done. These mythologies spring up, right? Romulus and Remus, right? The founding of Rome, the whole story around the founding of Rome has to do with two twin brothers who get in a fight and Romulus kills Remus. And then Rome was established because of this founding murder. You know, it almost takes on this sort of sacred act. And it does seem like in society, we perpetuate that scapegoating violence in various institutions. One example, not to get too political, but I believe is capital punishment, you know, in the US. You know, it seems like in this country, there's no reason why we have any kind of need to execute anybody, in my opinion. I, I just, I don't think that it's something that, that we need to do. But it almost seems as if, because it's a highly ritualized act, it seems like some kind of a recreation of some ancient scapegoat mechanism to me. And I spoke to one scholar of René Girard, and he said, you know, in all of the debate about capital punishment, 
the one most fascinating case against abolishing capital punishment would be that maybe society would just sort of crumble and collapse if it didn't have this ritual that plays out around this violent act that provides some sense of catharsis for people. And we, I think we can find examples of this ritualized violence all throughout our culture at the heart of our institutions, at the heart of companies, you know, corporate cultures that rely on sacrifice to survive, even in sports, right? They're sort of the ritualized process of singling out who was responsible for the team sucking that year. You know, this year, maybe it's the Lakers and it's going to be Westbrook and whatever. And then we, we get rid of them and then there's a temporary feeling of catharsis and then we move on. So, in deep, serious, dark ways, we do this. Then even in sort of more superficial ways, we do it in our Twitter feeds, right? We see that, you know, it's a form of social cohesion bonding around this kind of ritualized violence. Clearly, it seems like scapegoating serves a very real and oftentimes useful purpose in societies both old and modern. But I also wonder, even if they're necessary, there have to be ways in which scapegoating actually prevents, because it relieves the tension, actual necessary social change, right? Like, obviously, there are ways in which scapegoating can break the fever of a toxic mimetic cycle that is kind of a madness, right? That might be consuming a, a village or a city or something. But when it comes to, let's say, something like endemic racism or sexism, et cetera, and we have modern examples of this too, where we'll single one person out and they'll be sent to prison or run out of the public square, fired from their job, et cetera. And they'll act as kind of a marker, right? Whether it's like a Harvey Weinstein or, you know, there's so many different names you could pick. And you're like, ah, he or she is the symbol of the toxic rot within XYZ portion of society. But the thing is, is it relieves the tension. We all, at least on the surface, move on, quote unquote. But societal problems are always bigger and more widespread and interconnected than any one single person. So it seems like scapegoating helps us relieve tension, you know, that keeps us from boiling over. But in a way, it also kind of retards actual progress because it gives us a feeling of relief that maybe stops us from continuing to press forward for more change. Yes, the scapegoat mechanism absolutely prevents systemic change because it concentrates our attention and focus on a single or solitary figure and does provide the sense of catharsis. I remember watching the Jeffrey Epstein case with real intrigue because obviously I was writing this book and thinking very much about the scapegoat mechanism as I was watching that. I mean, obviously, he's not the only person that has committed crimes like this, but there was such focus on him. And when he died, it was as if the scapegoat process was not able to be completed. And I think that's what left some people so uneasy about that. I mean, aside from questions about how he died, just the fact that the process, right, almost the catharsis wasn't able to be completed was a disruption. That's one of the most interesting things about that case, in my opinion. So, yes, the scapegoat mechanism gives us an out where we don't have to deal with systemic change, whether it's racism, whether it's any kind of societal injustice, because it's giving us the illusion that we've driven out the problem and there's the temporary catharsis, the temporary relief. And we haven't done any of the, especially internal work that all of us sort of need to do with examining these problems in our own lives. 
you know, racism is, is a good example, right? We, we are all called to do that. We all have to do that. But when we can identify and single out one sort of really egregious person who seems particularly racist, we can always look at that person and say, well, I'm not like that. And they deserve that punishment. And we can kind of kick the can down the road a little bit further without actually addressing the root causes. That is a great observation. The point you made about how because Jeffrey Epstein wasn't able to go through the full scapegoating process, right? A process that on a conscious level, if you haven't read about this topic, you're not even aware is happening. And the fact that it was abridged, that's such a great observation because it it explains like that kind of feeling that was in the air, like around the office water cooler when we were all talking about it. It also explains why kind of all these conspiracies start happening, right? I think there's just this kind of feeling like, even if we don't know it on a conscious level, and I don't think most people even understand the scapegoating cycle. I mean, I honestly didn't even really recognize it in our society for what it was until I read your book. But that's such a great observation of how it kind of left us unfulfilled. And in a weird way, left us in this in-between where we, one, both realized that even if his conviction had gone all the way through, that there were all these other terrible people who were just kind of waiting in the wings or, or in darkness, so to speak. And, and so the problem was never going to be solved. It kind of brings attention to the limited nature of scapegoating when the scapegoating process is abridged mid-process. I got hung up on that observation you made because it's such a good one. Thank you. No problem. But to go in the exact opposite direction of someone like Jeffrey Epstein, (laughs) let's talk about models and people we would want to model our lives after. So there is a quote by Milan Kundera that you open the book with that relates to models in a way. Quote, we can never know what to want because living only one life, we can neither compare it with our previous lives nor perfect it in our lives to come. End quote. So, How can models, other people in our lives, help us live many lives, so to speak? Yeah, each of our models sort of represents a version of our life that it seems like we think is missing from our life. You know, we wouldn't have a model of desire if we didn't think that they possess something that we lacked. And we'll probably never find all of those things in the same person necessarily. But we'll probably put together an amalgamation of models, each one representing, you know, something that we think that we lack. And in each one of them, you know, we can kind of live a different life. And I, you know, I love that book by Kundera, by the way. I do think it sort of presents desire as more of a cipher than it really is. You know, I don't, I don't think that human desire is a cipher, right? Like we can never know what to want, you know, because living only one life. I do believe that we can come to an understanding of, of what to want. So, I mean, in my own life, you know, one of the kind of hermeneutical tools that I use to sort of identify the motivations behind what I'm wanting is just asking the very simple question, you know, is it loving? Is this desire that I have loving or is it coming from a place of insecurity or pride or envy? I do think there are these very sort of simple questions that can kind of help us to identify, you know, why we're pursuing the things that we're pursuing, right? What's our motivation? And we can take that kind of question into account when we're thinking about models, you know, different models of desire that come in and out of our lives. What kind of a relationship do we have with those models? You know, do we have a rivalrous relationship with them? Do they make us insecure when we're around them? Are we in a loving relationship with them? The positive models in our lives 
are going to be the ones that we're in that sort of non-rivalrous relationship with. And one of the reasons that I like Kundera's book so much and, and his, you know, who, by the way, was a huge fan of René Girard. I think he'd read everything that Girard had ever wrote. And you can see some mimesis embedded in his books and in his characters in that quote in particular. That's a good example of it. He sort of gets at this idea that life is this iterative process. We have models that come in and out of our lives. And the goal is, as they do, we can either gain a better understanding of ourselves and who we are or not. So, as we sort of live different lives through these different models, the goal, the ultimate goal is to live our own and take away self-knowledge and discovery from these different models of desire. There's a book that I can't quite remember the name of, but I am remembering a passage from it. It's actually about like how to be a better salesman. I can't remember the name of it, but it's talking about how once you understand human psychology and you understand that humans have subconscious processes like animals do, you can kind of use that knowledge to your benefit, so to speak. But one thing that he points out, this author draws attention to how we'll look at animals, right? The example he uses is a kind of fish that whenever it sees the female of its species starts doing a mating dance and scientists were observing this fish and they could trigger the fish's dance by taking like a red cloth, putting the red cloth underwater and shaking the cloth, and the cloth, you know, in its appearance, in a rudimentary way, it was close enough to how that female fish appeared that it would trigger the male fish to do his mating dance. And the author, I remember this passage because it really stuck with me for a very long time. I read this book about 15 years ago. And the author was making a point that we look at animals like this, or we can anyway, and think, uh, we're so much better than them. You know, humans would never do that. We're smarter than this. We're not going to fall for some fancy red cloth, you know, dangling in front of us. And all of a sudden we're going to start dancing and we have no idea why. But he went on to then say, actually, the human brain does all sorts of things subconsciously that we're not aware of. And we don't understand why we do some of the things that we do. And one of the things that I really loved about your book, Luke, was how it draws so much attention to that very idea that there are cycles that we can get trapped in. There are wants we can have, desires we can have. We'll do things, pursue things, go to school, go after jobs, take up people as models, and all these other facets of our lives that we'll pursue without ever really asking or understanding why we're doing them. So I guess my question, as it relates to models and kind of mimetic desire in general, but in this instance, I guess we could keep it to models if you'd like, is if so much is happening at a subconscious level in ways that we can't fully understand, even when someone does the work, right, reads Rene Girard, reads Wanting, and even understands it, how long can we actually consciously harness that? It's kind of like if you learn a foreign language and it's not your native tongue, there is some way in which you have to consciously think about it as you're speaking, as you're listening. It's never going to totally be a part of you. So how do we regulate that? Understanding that mimetic desire, understanding that seeking out models is in many ways a subconscious process that happens in the background. How do we take those moments when we can consciously harness it and think about it and focus our attention in really efficient ways when we can? How do we strike that balance? 
Yeah, it's a great question. And by the way, the, I, the fish sort of example is hilarious, I think, you know, waving a, a thing and making this fish do it. I'm surprised there's not a meme about that yet. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm going to be thinking about that one. I've got this imagery in my mind of this fish dancing. You know, I think that we will always be mimetic creatures. I know that I am. And I read Rene Girard over 10 years ago and have been deeply probing myself and, and doing everything that I can to see this within me, both the, you know, my positive mimetic desire and my negative mimetic desire. And my wife makes fun of me all the time because I wrote a book about mimetic desire and I'm as mimetic as anybody. So we have it in us and the goal is not to escape it. I think trying to escape it is oftentimes just folly. It can make us more mimetic than ever as we think of ourselves as not subject to this. It's like, why do all hipsters look alike, right? And like we rejected the popular culture and just adopted new models. And Gerard has a striking phrase. It's like everybody leaves the beaten path and falls into the same ditch, you know, thinking themselves so independent for leaving the beaten path. People make certain decisions in their lives that I would call transcendent life-altering choices, you know, the kinds of choices that color all of the other choices. Getting married is one good example you make a decision that sets a moral direction to your life. And then there are a bunch of other decisions that are sort of colored by the big decision. But those are the moments where we, I think we can step back and sort of gain some clarity and be intentional about choosing one thing or another. It could be just being intentional about being honest about our own motivations and our own desires. And, you know, you make that sort of choice And you say, I'm going to live an intentional life, an examined life. And every year I'm going to come back. I go on a silent retreat every year, for instance, and I'm going to continue this journey. And this is the direction that I'm setting out in my life. And for sure, the subconscious processes take over because we can't be thinking about speaking the language all of the time. I learned Italian at a relatively late age and it was brutal because I'm sort of such an analytical mind and thinker. I, I was like thinking about what I'm going to say while I'm trying to say it, which is, as you know, just a recipe for disaster and trying to learn a foreign language. We can't to live our lives and to not be super weird. We can't be thinking about our own mimesis all the time, right? So you're right that these things take over, but there's a difference between somebody that recognizes when it's happening or recognizes when they feel the tug of getting caught up in a mimetic mob that's about to scapegoat somebody. And you start to learn what that feels like. And you catch it early enough to be able to, where you still have the autonomy, you still have the freedom to say no and make an intentional choice about that. It doesn't mean that we're not still subject to all of the same forces and that we don't go down paths unconsciously sometimes, but that we still have the ability to transcend the kind of base instincts that we have, the mimetic instincts and to rise above that once in a while. you know. And I think when a person does that enough, their life begins to take on a new shape. I want to take us to the final question of the episode, but I do want to note there is so much in what you just explained that connects to what I learned in cognitive behavioral therapy. Not being able to always think about the cycles that Speaking of cognitive behavioral therapy, the cycles that you can get into that can form a negative spiraling thought But having the tools to be aware of when it's happening and then knowing how to stop it. And I've read the book. We've we've been having this conversation for, I guess, about 90 minutes now. But 
it was literally the example you just gave, Luke, that almost makes it seem like a mimetic crisis is like a society-wide version of what can happen inside an individual, or at least it's how I experienced depression and anxiety, when my brain would get caught in a toxic cycle or obsession over a single thought. And it was only by becoming aware of what was happening, being able to distance myself from my own brain, realize that the thought was negative and untrue, and then being able to let it go or expel it. Obviously, not exactly one-to-one, and I wasn't scapegoating anything inside my brain, (laughs) but it's just interesting how you get the tools to become aware of the toxic cycle so that you can figure out how to break it. And that was just a really beautiful way to phrase it, and it really stuck out to me. Yeah. I've had a lot of people reach out to me about the book, but nobody more than psychologists and people that work in sort of cognitive behavioral therapy. Because Gerard, this is a social theory, and he was not a psychologist. But, you know, they see these connections. So, I'm really excited to sort of go down that road. I think there's so many deep connections here. And part of, you know, my process is just having learned to see my own weakness and be able to laugh at myself a little bit when I see myself going down these roads. That's been a tremendously helpful thing for me. And I think that perfectly ties in with our final question. And I'd love to ask you about a topic that was a real centerpiece of the podcast for the first 45 episodes of the show, and that's empathy. In chapter six of your book, you write, quote, in a mimetic crisis, everyone starts to become like everyone else. They lose self-possession and freedom, end quote. So how can we harness what you call in the book disruptive empathy to steal ourselves against being swallowed up in a mimetic crisis, which let's be honest, seemed to be (laughs) ever more prevalent in our social media age and use that knowledge to better understand where we go next? Well, it really comes down to, first of all, this having the awareness that we are at risk of being swallowed up in that process in the first place. And I lived most of my life not even knowing that I was caught up in mimetic processes. So, the awareness is important. You know, as long as the awareness leads to actual change and self-knowledge and affects the will at some level, the knowledge alone is not enough, right? I tend to think we live in a very Gnostic society where we view knowledge as salvation and the knowledge alone, right? Like if I listen to enough podcasts and read enough books and I know enough facts and my life will be great. Well, obviously we know that's not the case. You can know everything there is to know in the world and still be really miserable. So, unless the knowledge and the awareness of these processes actually affects us and affects some transformation and allows us to be more free and responding differently when we're confronted with hate and darkness and modes of being and speaking in our culture that are toxic, we actually have the freedom to respond differently. There are many different layers of freedom. There's physical freedom. There's psychological freedom. There's spiritual freedom different layers of depths to these freedoms. And you know, many people are not psychologically free enough not to respond in sort of a knee-jerk way to you know, provocations, for instance. I'm thinking of the political sphere right now. And I have to give a shout out to our friend Irshad Manji here, our mutual friend, I think. She talks about this all the time in terms of having moral courage is how she describes it. That's why I love her work so much. Because it takes courage to respond in what I would call an anti-mimetic way to somebody else. You know, when somebody's being aggressive to us, when somebody dislikes us, maybe even has hatred towards us and responds to us in a non-loving way, being able to have the freedom 
to not respond in kind, even when every every kind of instinct in our body tells us that we want to, right? You hit me, I hit you, maybe even a little bit harder. We're sort of wired almost to have this mimetically aggressive response when we feel that we have been wronged or when some violence has been done to us. But I believe there is a way to respond anti-mimetically and to sort of change the negative mimetic cycle, which never ends well, into something positive, you know, positive mimesis. And with this, I think one of my favorite examples of this kind of anti-mimetic behavior is the bishop and Jean Valjean in Les Mis, right? So, for anybody who doesn't know the story, Jean Valjean was in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. He comes out, he's taken in by the bishop, and what does he do? He steals the bishop's silver in the middle of the night. And you know, the response to that, you know, for most normal people, I think, would be justice needs to be done. And what does the bishop do? Well, he responds in the most unexpected way when the officers show up and, sir, what, you know, what happened here? He gives him his silver candlesticks as well and sends him on his way. And Valjean expecting retribution and punishment and instead receives mercy in the face of his act was enough to effect a change. It's a beautiful thing when we realize that we have the power to rise above how other people want us to react. And this is the whole game behind trolling. A troll knows that he has the power to get somebody to respond in a certain way. And that perpetuates a cycle. And if people don't respond in that way, well, the troll loses all of his power. And this is something I think we can all take with us into our everyday lives. Most of us won't be given an opportunity to sort of show mercy to Jean Valjean. Uh, But I bet we have opportunities in our daily lives, probably even in the course of your day today. You'll have an opportunity to respond in an anti-mimetic way, in this way of showing empathy in a disruptive way meaning disrupting the usual cycle of sort of tit-for-tat aggression and violence. And if you do that, even in little ways, it just has a powerful, powerful effect on a culture and eventually on your own life. Beautifully said. I want to say to anyone who's listened to this episode that not only is it a great book, but I think what really stuck out to me was that beneath all the stuff that is in this book that I was able to learn that you'll learn if you read it as well. I think at its core, it is a book about ultimately understanding how to love yourself better. Mimetic theory was something that you were able to harness to better understand why you were doing the things you were doing, Luke, and why you weren't happy. And it's about giving yourself the tool to step back, understand why you're making decisions sometimes without even really thinking about them. So you can then make better decisions for yourself and be kinder to yourself. And I think in life, we can all get caught up in cycles that we're unaware of that lead us into toxic habits or to dead ends where we're unhappy. The book represented a journey to me about a man who was learning to love himself more and make better decisions for himself and then wanting to share that knowledge with others so that they might replicate that in their own lives. So thank you so much, Luke, for making the time to talk with me today and also for writing this book because there were a lot of ways in which I connected with it and I'm definitely going to be using that knowledge going forward. So thank you. Thanks so much, Michael. I really enjoyed the conversation. Tune in June 7th for a conversation with comedian and podcast host, Rocky Powell. Thanks for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.